Hi, this is Rosemary Armeo, and this is On the Brink. We're heading into part two of a conversation we kind of got cut off on last week. I don't know how that happened. I'm here with uh, Wall Street investment banker and my old colleague from the roundtable, Mark Whitman, and with an old colleague of mine from way back, <laughs> beginning my beginning days in journalism, Marianne Sharkey. She's an outstanding investigative reporter, and she knows tons about politics, too. And we promised a conversation last week, and we didn't get to all the things that we had on our list. So I want to open it today, um, not with immigration. I know we owe you something on that. We promised it. But with Ukraine, because we've reached the two-year mark of the war um, against Ukraine, the hideous war against Ukraine by Russia. And I'm going to throw out this question. I'm curious what you think. Why haven't sanctions worked? We have gone after, Europe has gone after, the whole world seems to have gone after uh, the uh, the economic strength of Russia. It seems stronger than ever. They have never backed down. They seem stronger than ever. How is that possible? What do you think, Marianne? Well, I, I'm not an expert on, on sanctions, but I, I do know that we tried to strangle the oligarchs. Um, and uh, we thought that the oligarchs could get to Putin. And obviously that was a miscalculation because I don't think Putin cares about the oligarchs. And as it turns out, the oligarchs don't care about Putin either. Um, and and I don't, you know, it, it's hard to say. We've tried and tried to use these sanctions, but they just seem to fail every time. And we've just recently, now we just put on a whole new batch of sanctions, which I'm not even sure what all they are, other than they said, uh, you know, we have a whole new slew of sanctions. Well, Mark, you are an, an economic expert. How come the sanctions aren't working? In fact, have sanctions ever worked any place? Rosemary, I, I think your question is great. As a matter of fact, I've been walking around asking it myself. Uh, <laughs> let me tell you and the listeners where I've come to, but that's different than saying I'm I'm not open to discussion or suggestions. Number one is, I would say, although economically they haven't worked, if you listen to people, particularly Ukrainians in Kyiv, they suggest that at least technologically they have. I actually heard um, a Ukrainian legislator on an FT panel, Financial Times panel, say, well, I wouldn't be talking to you from my apartment in Kyiv. I'd either be in another city or in a bunker if it weren't for, this for the sanctions that have curtailed Russia's ability to replace the technology that it needs to build some of the weapons, particularly missiles. So I think we need to preface the answer to your question by saying, in some ways, sanctions have worked. I think the reason, though, we haven't have sanctions ever worked. Well, certainly, if you look at North Korea or Iran, it suggests that they have in the past in terms of at least significantly crimping economic activity in the target countries. Different from saying they've elicited the behavior we want from those countries, but certainly we've inflicted pain. I think in the case of Russia, as best I can figure it, Rosemary, there are two issues. Number one, Russia is such a large component of the, of the international oil market that once these sanctions started to work, the feedback loop in terms of increased oil price would have bit us and our allies in the ass too quickly and too hard for us to actually put the sanctions in properly. And what do I mean by put in properly? What you have to do in order to make these things work is that as soon as there's a workaround where the, say, the Russians are using another way, means of transporting their oil, 
you have to figure out what institutions in terms of banks and businesses are dealing with those rogue oil carriers. And if you can't sanction the rogue oil carrier directly, you can go potentially right. to their bank, their insurer, and other people right. with whom they do right. business and say, you have to stop doing business with all of these people. So there's a secondary. And I think the U.S. has been reticent to put on the necessary effort onto secondary yes. sanctions because it didn't want oil prices in the in oil to and go spiraling gas upward to spiral. So right. frankly, I, I actually think primarily it's because of our timidity. And, yeah, and, and I, I, I go ahead. Go ahead. I, I was I, I think you're right. We never in the first round and now in the second round, I am not seeing a real pressure on the thing that would really hurt Russia, which are gas and oil prices. And then there's one other thing, which is a great criminality uh, that Russia is capable of. They're going through Belarus and Kazakhstan to get a whole bunch of stuff that they should be getting and used to get from Europe. They're bypassing the whole sanctions route. And there's, yeah. how do how do we touch how do we touch either of those places? Well, for instance, in Belarus, and I'll get it wrong, but I'm sure in Belarus now they are buying probably 100 iPhones per capita. Yep. Right. Yep. And because they're all being shipped into, and what you have to do then is you knock on Apple's door and you say, we know you and I, you and we know that those uh, phones are going into Russia. You need to help us fix it. And and there's just his historical precedent for this. Uh, China used to ban, for instance, Philip Morris cigarettes, and everybody in Hong Kong for a while was smoking five packs a day. Uh, and so <laughs> China went to Hong Kong and said, it went to Philip Morris, rather, and to Hong Kong and said, you have to help us with this. So I, I think the U.S. has been timid. timid. And, and I, I think this is a great way to open because I do think the United States bears far more blame for what's happening than just the current Republican reticence to supply arms and cash to the Ukrainians. And right. it's because if you have to think about this problem, this started not two years ago, but in 2014. Exactly. And in response to that, uh, Barack Obama and his administration, including Biden, actually prohibited the, the transportation of le lethal weapons. And then even once this started, Biden took far too many steps back when there was a uranium-tipped threat by the Russians. He seemed right, far right. too afraid of it. I, I think, honestly, we've all learned and, that. And may I add, um, they, they're still holding back, even you know before this current impasse caused by the Republicans in the House of not giving any money to Ukraine. We held back the big, the big ordinance, the, the the weapons that we are freely giving to Israel, may I point out, uh, which is fighting uh, a mostly unarmed citizenry rather than uh, the second biggest military in the world. We're still not giving them weapons that they need. Um, That's correct. Can, and it was just this week that Jan Stoltenberg highlighted for everyone, the head of NATO, or, or at least I forget what executive function he serves in NATO, uh, highlighted that the rules of war would indeed allow Ukraine to defend themselves by going after legitimate targets in Russia. Now, presumably Absolutely. that's been true from day one. And, and frankly, I, I think the U.S. timidity around this, if you look all the way back to 2014, uh, is something that, that leaves those of us who, who are on the side of the Ukrainians wishing that we had done a lot of things differently from quite some time ago. 
Okay, you can see why we went over last week. These are topics that get us all going. You've been listening <laughs> to Mark Whitman. We used to be together on the roundtable. It's so nice to have you here again to try this. But I'm going to switch now to Marianne Sharkey from Ohio, a journalist and a politician. Um, Russia has not been timid. Russia just killed the uh, Putin's most outstanding critic. Uh, and that, of course, is Alexei uh, Navalny. Do you think it's related to his his opposition, not just to Putin's everything about him, but specifically to Ukraine? Uh, is his death connected to that? Well, I, I can't really say, Rosemary, but I mean, the whole thing is mysterious in terms of the, its timing. Um, you, you really have to wonder if this opposition by the Republican Party uh, to giving more money to the Ukrainians, particularly the House Republicans, um, to give more money. And then, of course, Ohio's uh, J.D. Vance, Senator J.D. Vance, of, yeah. uh, you know, hillbilly elegy fame, um, <laughs> which is a whole different issue because the town he's from is not a hill, is not an Appalachia. But uh, that could only be said by me, an Ohioan, because I can tell you the whole thing's pretty much a fraud because Middletown wow. is between Cincinnati and Dayton, which is a one big metropolitan area. And it's also thr a thriving area with a lot of jobs and it's never had the same problems as Appalachia. But I I digress there. Um, <laughs> That's allowable. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the, the, I mean, I, I think that timing is just because we once again have, you know, weakened our own selves. We have shown Putin our vulnerabilities. We have shown Putin what we don't have the strength to follow through. I mean, it's always been, I think, with him, um, his knowledge of, of the United States and the fact that, you know, the United States has ADHD. And we mm -hmm. we, we, we really do not pay a, a long, long, we don't look in the long run. Putin does think in the long run. I mean, it's very, very long-term uh, strategies. Mm -hmm. And he knows he knows about the American election cycle. He knows about the Republicans. He, he they certainly were helping Trump. There's no question about it. And so I think that the fact that he was so emboldened uh, during this period of of the fact that the United States is just sitting there on its hands, uh, trying you know trying to figure out what it's going to do next for Ukraine, give it, gave him an opportunity to to uh, take care of his enemy. Yeah, I find the timing also interesting. Like, why now? He has been a thorn in Putin's side for right. decades. And uh, he it was so ham-handed. Not, I mean, I think he wanted it known as an assassination. And really, just as Crimea gave Russia a free hand to go after the rest of Ukraine now, didn't our behavior under the Trump administration with Khashoggi, a journalist from the Washington Post, being killed, dismembered, cut up into pieces and hidden, uh, and we didn't do anything to Saudi Arabia, does that not say to Putin, hey, I'm going to get away with this? Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, no question about it. We, we, we The fact that we were so weak need and did not hit back, you know, of course, Trump's, you know, son-in-law got a $20 billion investment uh, out of the Saudis, um, which, you know, it's so interesting that they pound and pound on Hunter Biden while it totally <laughs> yeah, doing the real stuff, you know? Oh, uh, no, don't tell me you're digressing now into American Hunter, political Hunter hypocrisy. Hunter Biden was like, was like a pickpocket compared yeah. to what happened to, to a whole bank embezzlement uh yep. that went went down 
Um, so I, you know, it's, I think, I think the fact that we were very weak need and Trump was very weak need. And, and in the meantime, Putin knew that, uh, you know, they were trying to get uh, dirt on Joe Biden and, and, and the Saudis are, are equally in, uh, know our, know our politics, knows our mm-hmm. cycles, understands what makes us tick and, and now. And plays Saudi- us. And yes, right. And takes advantage of our weakness. So so I'm going to switch back now to Mark because we've talked about this in the past. Um, I had predicted, I'm stunned they lasted this long. I thought Ukraine was going to fall immediately and they held up and they have been incredibly brave and resilient. And I could go on and on about them. I so admire that spirit. But um, the long-term thinking of Putin is paying off. They are dec- they don't have enough people to throw at the front lines anymore. They're going to drop the um, the age for um, conscription from twenty seven down to twenty five. They need warm bodies. Can they keep this up even with a European and American help? Should that ever come again? Can they really keep it up, or is Russia going to win? Mark. Uh- I think the Ukrainians can keep it up. I, I think they face three challenges. One, as you say, is to continue to muster the requisite personnel. And Rosemary, actually, I, I think the solution to that problem lies to their east. Uh, frankly, Putin has had the same issue, and he's used a formula that includes coercion and economic incentive to get people into the trenches. And the Ukrainians uh, need to emulate that, perhaps in different mixes with less coercion and more incentive. But there is an answer for that problem. Obviously, uh, the Ukrainians need continued military support. Uh, you know, there's a node here that says a, a decision node where if the U.S. doesn't stay in, they've they've got to limit their objectives to holding the line as best they can. With the U.S. in, it's a different formula. The other thing that the Ukrainians need are hope and will. There will be no elections, and it's important uh, for Zelensky, particularly given the degradation in his popularity, to make sure that at least socially within the country, there's a place to give voice to opposition. And I think there's going to be pressure on him to form some sort of a government which includes the opposition in the absence of elections, because I think that hope and will is is the key. I actually think that Russia is far weaker than, than we in the West can articulate because of the lack of visibility we have. I don't see them overrunning Ukraine. You and I have talked about the fact that uh, Mm. there is no modern example of an insurgency that's been quelled by a larger power uh, Mm -hmm. when that larger power has knocked on the door. I think the real risk to the Ukrainians, back to the will and hope point, is that uh, if they're not overrun militarily, the risk is that they become ever less de- democratic and lose their gaze towards the West and, and their interest in reforming their society. That's the real, to me, that's the Ukraine defeat that is a more realistic scenario mm-hmm. than the mm-hmm. Russians raising the, the flag in Kiev. You know, we're, we're talking about big global uh, 
uh, geopolitical movement here, and that leaves out the little people. But I promised Marianne a minute here to talk about um, some efforts being made by citizens, not the government, but we don't have to get this through House Republicans. There's things we can do as Americans to show support for um, people fighting for democracy. For me, it has been donating money to Ukrainian journalists whose families are also at risk. Their lives are and homes are in danger, just like the soldiers, and they're still there reporting, and they have been for two years now. Marianne, tell, tell us a little bit about your efforts to help in a small way. In Ukraine. Well, mine, of course, it's just a small way, but it's what what any individual, including your listeners, can do, which is sign up to be a sponsor, and you can sign up through Uniting for Ukraine. Um, I I sponsored a mother and her daughter. Um, the mother is forty one, and the daughter is twenty six. Um, and well, actually, she's forty six and twenty six. Um, but I, I, it's been a wonderful experience for me. I met them at the airport, Cleveland airport. Um, I had, they didn't know me. So I brought a Ukrainian flag and they were, they were thrilled and uh, we settled them down immediately. Um, unfortunately, Cleveland didn't have, they don't drive. So Cleveland did not have public transportation. So I ended up having taken, I took them to Ukrainian village um, in Chicago where they are settled now and they both have retail jobs. Um, the, the rub here is there's two couple of things I want to talk about. One was um, they they do not have refugee status. And that is something people don't know. They don't have a path to citizenship in the United States. Right now, they are uh, they are called humanitarian parolees, which is which is kind of like the purgatory. They're they're oh. they're they're, ne they're neither fish nor fat. Um, they. They, they, they're here for two years. Um, the mother and daughter that, that I sponsor, will they'll be up in probably October. And I don't know whether the United States is gonna renew uh, the programs for them or what. Uh, the other thing is, it was very apparent to me when we first got, when we first got into this pro these programs, um, social security wasn't prepared to handle it. The, um, the welfare departments, state welfare departments were not prepared at all. The um, uh, it it was it was frankly a nightmare. Um, it took me six months to get them a social security number. I went. They could not work without social security. They couldn't open a bank account without social security. I went five different times. Each and every time, I was promised there would be another fourteen days, um, and I'd go back again and be another fourteen days. Mm -hmm. um, and and then they put them in, the, in a Medicaid program without dental benefits. And uh, then the welfare department, treating them just like any welfare person in, in the United States, was demanding that they be uh, job hunting. Well, they couldn't job hunt because they didn't have social security. So they, it, was, it was a long, and finally I got Senator Sherrod Brown from Ohio, uh, um, his office, and uh, worked with them. And I also worked with uh, the Cuyahoga County uh, Council and um, and both times I was successful, but there's not a lot of people, Rosemary. I will admit it. Right. And know how to call Sherrod Brown. Right. And know how to right. call the county council and know and how to the, get and have the nerve out. to do it like you do. Yes. Exactly. And, and, I, and I have to wonder what happened, you know, to all these well, other Ukrainians who came over and didn't have, you know, the ability to access the this um, 
you know, these agencies and government. Well, you know, Marianne, you know, this is just the problem with these people coming into the United States. They're just looking for the benefits. They're just trying to rip off our rich system and they didn't do anything for us. We're going to talk more about immigration in a minute. We have to take a break here. Our Mayo on the Brink is brought to you by the Donna Frank team of Berkshire Hathaway Home Services, Blake Realtors. That's a mouthful. But Donna is super impressive. We met when she worked at WAMC as a crack fundraiser. And since then, she's moved on to become also crack, a licensed real estate salesperson. Last year, she ranked as the top agent in the capital region. If you need honest answers about your real estate, check in with her. You are going to be impressed too, I promise. You can reach her at, um, this is the email, DonnaFed, D-O-N-A-F-E-D, at gmail.com. The Apple Barn and Country Bake Shop on Route 7 in Vermont is closed right now. It is winter, you remember. They're closed until March 15th, but plans are already underway for a big spring reopening, new festivities. I understand mimosas may be involved, along with the donuts and pies that they're famous for, the Apple Barn. So keep an eye on their website. It is theapplebarnalloneword.com. You'll hear and see announcements there. Karen's Place. K-A-R-I-N is a gorgeous retreat. I've been there and visited on 22 acres out in Vermont, rural Vermont. It's available for rental for everything from weddings and family reunions to corporate conferences. Uh, it's close to city centers around here, but it's you would think you were in another country. It's beautiful. Go to www.karensplacevt.com. Today, as we are taping this, the Senate is considering the impeachment of the Homeland Security Secretary. Um, this perceptive action by House Republicans is likely finally to settle the problem with immigration. Right, Mark? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, Rosemary, the immigration problem to me actually seems like it has a pretty straightforward solution. And I actually think we have to thank uh, Governor Abbott and his ilk for exposing it, which ah. I know sounds a little twisted given, look, the policy of moving people around on deceptive premises is, is cruel. But I, I think it points out that there is clearly a limit in the United States as to how many people at any one given time we as a country can, can integrate into our society. And I also think that 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 limit is approximately knowable. If you go out to all the municipalities and say, how many do you have room for? And you configure a set of government incentives that's properly designed to get municipalities to stretch, I think you can figure out what the capacity here is. Then that's I think- That's interesting. Which, that's then, an interesting idea. So you I would come up with the numbers, like we can let in this many people. 
That's right. And then the thing that you have to do that's a little controversial is you have to go to the border and you have to put your hand on the asylum dial and fix that dial to <laughs> correspond with what fits into this country. Now, technically, we are party to an international agreement that, that lays out rules, not numbers, as to who we allow in for asylum. Frankly, I think you've got to figure out a way to, to square that circle. You know, the immigration problem has changed dramatically since the 1990s and 2000s, and the rhetoric hasn't changed. It used to be that there were Mexicans and Central Americans, mostly young men, who avoided contact with immigration, got into the labor force and sent money back home. Some of them aspired to stay here for, for a long time and ended up doing so. Now people seek contact because, frankly, they're trying to use the asylum system. The other thing we need to do is, is acknowledge to ourselves that out of the pool of people that show up, we, we only toss out somewhere between 15 and 30 percent sort of quickly, depending on the time frame you're looking at and whose numbers you're hearing. The rest of them stay on for years in the asylum process, and only an estimate is only 80 to 90 percent, sorry, 80 to 90 percent of them won't be successful. So we need to flip this thing sort of on its head, hire the, a number, the number of immigration judges we need, and give people an answer when they show up at our borders immediately, frankly. And what that will do is if people realize that their odds are incredibly small, they'll stop showing up. And okay, we'll, that, stop that... Playing, we'll stop playing this cruel game where we tempt these people to go through that arduous journey that we all know about. Right. This is an interesting plan, not advanced before. Marion, do, do you give any credence to that or do you have another plan that well, might work? I, well, I've, I've come from a, um, Ohio, obviously, continues to lose population, as do most of the industrial states. Mm -hmm. um, and and they, they, need, they need the labor force. They need people to come in to these cities. I mean, you look at Cleveland. I mean, you it had double, triple the population it has now in 1950. Um, I, I don't understand why we can't come up with some big urban incentive to bring workers into these communities. There, there are houses, we're just tearing houses down, left and right. Yep. Um, and it, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's an industry now in Cleveland and Columbus and Toledo and Youngstown and all of these cities. It's a whole industry just to tear down old factories and tear down uh, houses and, and tear, tear down malls. Um, if you start repopulating, uh, as we did in the, obviously during the great immigration in the, in the 1800s, um, we started populating these areas and people started finding work and they started selling, selling goods to each other and they started to start doing mm -hmm. I, I don't see, I just don't understand why it doesn't occur to these decision makers that we have these giant cities that have uh, have lots of land, have lots of uh, housing available. Housing stock that could be, housing that stock could be repaired, yes. That yes. Could, could, you know, I mean, a lot of this housing stock is not what the Americans like because most of it is like, you know, two, two or three bedrooms and one bathroom downstairs. Right. Uh, it, it it does. This housing stock does not appeal to Americans. And, but which is, compared which, to a tent on the Texas border, exactly. it's pretty, pretty palatial. Exactly. You're right. I've never understood this argument. Uh, and Trump made it that, oh, we're filled up. We're not. I mean, you could just fence 
off Wyoming and just fill that up. And that would be fine. But there's more sheep there and cattle than people. And that's that's only half joking, as I say that. Um, There are jobs uh, going unfilled in every place in America right now. So why is it that we don't act? Everybody blames everyone else. It's the president's fault. It's the House Republicans' fault. Well, it is their fault, but you don't need them to actually act. I don't understand why Governor Hochul in New York, we've lost millions of people. We have jobs begging. There's uh, New York, however, is overrun with um, immigrants coming in for whom there are no facilities, adequate facilities. So why isn't she talking to the uh, mayors of municipalities throughout the state? Why isn't she talking to Governor Abbott? Why does it require the House, which has proved it will not act, or the president who's caught in this political maelstrom? Where where is the, the lack of action and leadership just just is so frustrating. It is frustrating. And yeah. the lack of imagination. Well, but, um, but, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. I, no, I, do go think ahead there, I do think, though, it's sort of a pipeline problem. I, I think there are only so many people, if you ask uh, the mayor of New York City, he'll tell you there's only so many people you can take at once. I think as a nation, Rosemary, we need to start to coordinate that. If you look Historically, immigration and integration in the United States has been our superpower. It it has been fundamental to our historical culture, politics, and economics, and economics and economic success. And it will be so in the future. Unfortunately, the system has gotten so backwards. We we need to make sure we we frankly we get it right. The one thing I I would say these are sort of footnotes. I do have a little bit of um, uneasiness. When I hear people say, well, we have jobs in the United States that, that you know, U.S. citizens won't do that immigrants will, I, I worry that, that there might be something about the conditions or pay or mix of conditions and pay for those jobs that ought to give us pause. You know, not, not every job that can be, um, that be, can be conceived of. Uh, should necessarily be done for minimum wage in this country. So I do think we have to be careful. Yeah, there. it's those jobs, however, have traditionally been entry-level jobs for new immigrants, and they have been appreciated. And and there are jobs that Americans are going to We are not going to go pick crops. So Hispanic workers who come in will always have an opening there. There are uh, jobs in factories. There are uh, retail jobs. There are waitre- waitressing and waiting jobs all over this country that are not dirty dirty or discussing what instead we're seeing, um, and this is another horrible thing, is we're seeing reductions and relaxations in child labor laws and immigrant children are being put into these jobs, not their parents who can't get social security and work permits. <clears throat> They're putting the kids into work. So there's the problem with paying paying low wages, putting a kid, work them to death and pay them nothing. And they're not even going to school. So they're well, never I have, a, I have, I have a giant nursery across the street from me. I mean, literally across the street from me with 300 Mexican workers. And frankly, I, I've got to know some of them. Um, they come they come in on a bus um, in February or March and they leave at Thanksgiving and they live in barracks. Um, and um, and they, they, they send all their money home while they're here for nine right, or 10 months. Right. Well, the one person I'm familiar with, his name is Martin Rojas. Martin, his family now owns, now owns a business he owns two homes and four cars in Mexico. Yep. And yep. he's making that money in nine months every year coming to the United States to 
pick crops. Now he's worked himself into a supervisory position, but he has he, he he's living like a king in, yep. in his neighborhood in Mexico. If you have your roof fixed in upstate New York right now, it is going to be done by a crew of Hispanic workers. And they come in and they do an entire gigantic house. I just had this done in two days. They're paid well. They're so appreciated by the companies that can't have enough, don't have enough workers and have more work than they can handle. So no, Mark, I, I think that that's a, that's a barrier that does not really exist. Um, however, okay, let's talk though a little bit about... Um, whether there's money to pay anybody in government after the end of this week. Uh, we are, as we are taping, we're, we're coming into what, the last four or five days before the government is fully funded. What is, what's your prediction on that, Mr. Banker? <laughs> well, Rosemary, history has taught me to bet against shutdowns. We seem to be very proficient at kicking the can down the road. I will say when, when the House set up this structure where they would only shut down part of the government initially and then another part. I don't like making it easier to get into the shutdown pool by putting the stairs in yeah. front of us. <laughs> uh, I, I'd like to force them to sort of jump in all at once and hope that they that's enough of a deterrent. So I think it's unlikely. I think the structure makes it slightly more likely than it's been. Um, but I think it continues to speak to the dysfunction, particularly within the House of Representatives. Yeah, well, I think, I think, yeah, I think everybody's tuned this out, don't you? I mean, it, you know, this is like, yeah. you know, little boy cried wolf. I mean, this keeps happening over and over and over again, and people are no longer taking it seriously at all. I mean, this has been going on since Newt Gingrich. And yeah. yep. and Bob Dole, you know, walked up on stage here swinging a golf club and, and shut mm -hmm. the government down during mm -hmm. the Clinton years. Um, it's, it's, again, I think just people are saying, you know, this brinkmanship, they're tired of it and, and they're, they're not paying attention to it. And they don't care. So, so the theme of our two-part conversation has been contingency plans uh, or alternative plans, if I can put it that way. What would be a better way to be handling this? Should should debt ceilings and um, running up against the limit, should that even be a matter for Congress? Isn't there a different way to do it? I don't know. Maybe listen to the constituents. Maybe listen to the people that voted them in. Maybe do what we've actually asked for maybe listen to all the polling and the voting that says we don't want any of the bullshit that they're doing right now. I don't know. I'm just chiming in there. <laughs> That's crazy talk. That's Zach Grady, our producer. And he's nuts. God forbid. <laughs> <laughs> but talking about crazy talk and actions, what is with Nikki Haley? What is she doing? Why is she still in this race? She's lost everywhere. She's lost decisively, including in her home state to Donald Trump. Why is she still slogging along here? What do you think, Marianne? I I, I think that she's trying to set herself up for another run. Uh, she thinks somehow this is going to help her uh, in 2028. I'm not sure it's going to translate or help her at all. I mean, or she's possibly just, you know, thinking that, you know, Trump could drop dead. Or he could he could be you know actually called off to jail. Um, she might just you know be rolling the dice. She might just be playing the lottery right now with, with her candidacy. Mark, what do you think? I, I agree. I heard a commentator say that she's uh, running for the office of uh, president of I told you so within the <laughs> Republican Party, which I thought was pretty good. I, I think she is. There's no national stage that's available to her, particularly given she's unlikely to be in a Trump administration, that's equivalent to the 
the attention she's getting now. So I think she's staying on the stage for her long-term benefit. And I also think, uh, as was mentioned, I think she's trying to extend the period of time during which she's the only other alternative, such that even if she gets out and down the road, Trump runs into some intractable problem, she increases the odds that the party feels obligated to turn to her as opposed to the vice presidential candidate or one of the other primary participants who dropped out long ago. So I actually think what she's doing uh, is pretty logical. Uh, I, I, I'm not a Haley fan, but I do give her credit for taking a thumping in her home state and continuing on given the, the parameters that she faces. And I think it's a perfectly logical um, approach from her standpoint, given the peculiar circumstances. Wow. I, 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 perhaps I am blinded by my distaste for her. She's an immigrant who votes against solid immigration reform. She's a woman who, uh, who votes against reproductive rights for women. In, in every way, she's an opportunistic, hypocritical person. Uh, and now she's saying, well, I'm different than like Liz Cheney, who also bucked uh, Donald Trump. Uh, I, I will be remembered. Why? Why, why is she going to get recognition from Republicans unhappy with Trump that Liz Cheney, for example, did not? Can you well, answer I don't me think that? She benefit, I don't see her benefiting from this. I really don't. No, I don't either. Uh, I mean, I, 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 I think it's a folly. Um, I, I think that she, you know, somehow, I mean, let's face it, if a lot of them are just trying out to, for, you know, to write a book. Uh, to, you know, to get a job with cable television as a commentator. Um, I mean, Newt Gingrich, again, kind of paved that way. I think his whole run for president was not really a run for president. It was a run for, you know, just being in the news. Um, mm -hmm. And and there's there's a lot of the, these politicians these days do that. I saw John Casey out of Ohio do that. He didn't have a, he didn't have a prayer. Mm -hmm. But here he is, you know, he's making a good living as a as a political commentator. Um, so and writing books. Yes. Even yeah, before that's... Newt Gingrich, remember, I think Pat Buchanan set the mold. That's as best, right. As best I, I can remember this. That, I, I think I you're do, right. I do think Haley's circumstances are different. I, I think it's not impossible that something happens to Trump that uh, makes it impossible for him. And if I were her. I would want to be the obvious number two for as long as I could I could fund it so that the party has to come to me if if something makes it impossible for him to continue. OK, A, the party is now run by Trump operatives, including his daughter in law. And B, why would they come running to him even if there is an opening? Trump goes to jail. They need a new candidate. Please listen to me about that. Um, why would it only be her? You don't think the the DeSantis's and and maybe other Republicans who didn't run uh, openly this time would come forward and still would beat her. I, I think I every know. every day she's his only opposition. Her claim to being that backup candidate just gets a little bit better. It's by no means assured. Yeah, so it's a gamble right. she's taking. It's a big gamble. She's rolling the dice. Yeah. Um, she'll be out. I think she'll be out after Super Tuesday. Yeah, uh, she said she would only last. Yeah, till then. she'll run, she'll run out of money. The Koch brothers are already, you know, cutting her off. Actually, Koch brother, um, yeah, is actually uh, <laughs> is, is actually, you know, has has now cut her off. Um, so you know, once she runs out of money uh, after Super Tuesday, I just can't imagine she, she'll be able to stay in. Okay, well, uh, my oh, go ahead, go ahead, Mark. I didn't mean to cut you off. 
That's okay. Well, then she'll be the president of I told you so for the next four years. It didn't get Hillary Clinton much, but we'll see what it does for her. <laughs> oh, I can't even say Hillary Clinton in the same breath as Nikki Haley. Oh, here's my last question for you guys. I, I hate to end this because I love talking with you. I'm going to bring you back again. So you're you're beholding to me for, for future. But who is who is a politician who gives you hope today? Who is someone who you see as, you know, the sort of leader that used to come along kind of regularly in American politics, but we have not seen in a while? Who would that be? That's a stumper. Uh, uh, let me think. I'm not sure who, who you could say um, that you have a lot of faith in. Um, maybe the governor of Michigan, the governor of California. Um, you know, I would probably look into the ranks of governors at this because they actually have to run something. They don't just have to, you know, yeah. run at the mouth like they do at the House of Representatives and the <laughs> Senate. They, they they actually have to have to, you know, run a run a, you know, have a real budget and yeah. uh, worry about taxation. And they worry about, uh, you know, balancing the budget and they've got to actually, you know, deliver, you know, services to people. So um, I would I would look into the ranks of governors. Interesting. How about you, Mark? You got one? Well, the, the two that I, I find uh, make me wince less when I hear them than others <laughs> are uh, Amy Klobuchar from Minnesota. I, I think she's genuine. I think she's intelligent. And I think she's got uh, her constituents' best interests at heart. And and I also, I'm, I continue to be very impressed by Pete Buttigieg, frankly. Oh, oh yeah. I thought he was disappointing as as a transportation director. I'm sorry. Why didn't he go to Ohio when that train wreck would have been? Well, yes. Well, and he would have and he would have won them over too. He could have just he could have just blown them away with his rhetoric, and instead he gets all high and mighty. I don't. Well, I I really I mean just we're in the media business here, or we're in the media business. I really would have liked to have seen uh, Pete in the position of being uh, the communications director. And overseeing all the communications and all the messaging for Biden because they've done a lousy job, and Pete is great at it. He's really good. I mean, I love every moment he gets on Fox News and he takes them down peg by peg. It's 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 just a wonder to behold. Uh, <laughs> okay, well, I I would pick Katie Porter, and I realize that she's uh she may be even out of Congress after she she's now running for the Senate and against stiff opposition, but. She's smart. She asks really good questions. I, I I really love her. I'd like someone like that in office. We need to end this. And uh, traditionally, we end our discussions with a toast. So I propose one today to the Ukrainian people who have lost insufferable, oh, just horrible, horrible losses. Um, 10 million people displaced or thrown out of the country, 100,000 dead. Uh, they're young men, the few that are remaining are going to be called up to go to the line to become basically cannon fodder. Their homes are destroyed. The world is really, including the United States, has left them hanging and they still fight on with incredible spirit, all for the sake of something we say we believe in and we have to show that we support them and that's freedom. So thank you very much and I appreciate your thank being you. on.
I love our sponsors and I want to tell you about two more of them. One is Pond Valley Press of Williamstown, Mass. It was founded way back in 1979. Um, go here. I'll give you their website in a second. You can find here and even order the music of David Keckley. He is the composer who put together those segments that you hear at the beginning, the end, and in the intervals in our uh, podcast. We get numerous um, comments, usually almost always compliments about that music. Um, that's Pine Valley Press, all one word, dot com. Check it out. And one of our first sponsors still with us has been Peacock Pots Pottery, that's that's a tongue twister for me. Uh, they offer the unique work of their founder who is engineer turned artist, Ona Papa Giorgio. You can check out the pictures of what she is capable of. It's really remarkable. And again, all one word, peacockpots.com. Please subscribe to an Armeo on the Brink. This doesn't cost anything and it really helps us out a lot. You can just go to the podcast platform of your choice and follow their instructions to subscribe or follow or like and rate, rate us. The more you do that, the more sponsors that we can end up getting. And that gives us a chance to do more and more extensive programming, which I would really like. I think you would like it too. I also have to tell you about something new we have coming on later this month and on the Brink website. This is a place where you will be able to interact with me and our guest panelists, get background information on the issues and the topics that we bring up. You can make suggestions, uh, render complaints even. You can hear my rants and I have a lot of opinions, you know. A weekly podcast just can't contain them all. So watch out for our upcoming website.